Wonderful. Well, so good to see you all here this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be diving back into the narrative of Exodus. We've spent uh, the last several weeks uh, in this kind of mini-series within a series looking at the Ten Commandments that started actually way back in June. And so now we're returning back to the narrative of the Exodus and back to the fires of Mount Sinai and that amazing divine revelation of God. Uh, This passage this morning really finishes off the giving of the law that we see in Exodus and kind of transitions us to the book of the covenant, which we're going to continue looking at next week. Uh, I'm going to be preaching next week on slavery. So, which is going to be really interesting. I'm excited for that. So, if you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter 20, and I'm going to read from verse 18. That's Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, And the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we Die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for the Lord has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness. Where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I call, cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is the word of the Lord. Why don't you join with me in praying? Lord God, this morning we come before your word and Lord, we're pleading with you, help us. Help us to hear from you. Help us to listen to you. Help us to enjoy more of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I start this morning uh, with a question. The question's this. Have you ever been absolutely overwhelmed by fear? You think about that. 
Have you ever been absolutely overwhelmed by fear? You know, Nick Gordon recently was. Uh, Charlotte and I were going to Westfield at the shopping center and I spotted Nick Gordon lining up uh, in the food court at like a Vietnamese place. And I had this idea, I snuck up behind him and stuck my fingers in his back and I said, don't you even move, buddy. And he jumped around and went, ah! like this. And he like shook for like 10 seconds until he realized it was me. Uh, it was awesome, um, so good. <laughs> Um, here's an honest confession though, I actually suffer from a vivid imagination and it often happens to me while I'm jogging in the bush like in North Taramara, I'm way out, often it's late in the afternoon and I start thinking to myself, what if like there's like a serial killer somewhere here in the bush who's just going to leap out of the next tree and just kind of take me off and you know kill me slowly or something like that. I start getting myself a little bit worked up about it until the other day I saw like this creepy looking guy walking along the bush track and suddenly I'm running past him and he sort of looks at me kind of funny and I keep running and the whole way back home I'm looking over my shoulder thinking that he's probably chasing behind me or something. Um, have you ever been absolutely overwhelmed by fear? Well, there's a kind of like a silly kind of irrational fear, like what I was talking about before, but there's also real fears, right? The kind of fears that keep you up at night. Things like losing the respect of your colleagues. Remaining single your whole life. Having sufficient money to pay the mortgage. Your spouse walking out the door. An upcoming performance review. An exam that could make you or break you. The declining health of a loved one. Or fear of your children coming to harm. Well, today we're going to continue a conversation Actually, we started back in June about fear, and specifically fear of the Lord. And we saw back in June that fear of the Lord is a gift from God for our good. We saw that the things that most captivate our hearts, we're likely to fear losing, and we can find ourselves in life enslaved to fear. You see, fear of the Lord is not about having a phobia or an irrational fear. It's actually about seeing God rightly and therefore seeing ourselves and our plight if we ignore him rightly. That is that we're going to face his wrath. So to fear God is actually to rightly to revere him. And to hold him in honor as the one who holds our life in the balance and is worthy of all praise. You see, fear of the Lord, if rightly grasped, is life transforming. It can release you from all other fears like the fear of man or the fear of suffering or the fear of death. Fear of the Lord, according to the Bible, is actually the beginning of wisdom. It's how we start to walk on God's gracious path of life when we revere him and we begin to listen to him. So this morning, we're going to dive back into the fires of Mount Sinai to carefully examine the response of Israel to the divine 
and hopefully glean some more lessons about true fear of the Lord. Uh, If you're taking notes, this morning's message I've entitled, Upon the Mount in Fire, Part 2. And really, I've got three main points uh, that we're going to be looking at. We're going to spend the longest amount of time in the first point. But really, one hope for us this morning, and that hope for this morning, this message, what we're going to be working towards this whole morning is this, that we would see that the true fear of the Lord leads to humble Worship. That's where we're going to be angling this whole message. That's what I believe this passage helpfully shows us that true fear of the Lord leads to humble worship. All right, let's dive straight into point number one uh, two sources of fear. Two different sources of fear. Uh, first of all, as we dive into this uh, first point, Really, we kind of need to understand our passage by taking a step back and kind of reviewing the story so far. It's been so long since we've been back in the narrative of Exodus. Uh, if you're new and joining us, our story this morning in Exodus started back with a nation in bondage and slavery for over 400 years at the hands of a cruel regime in Egypt. But God had not forgotten them. God caused the mother to defy the king's edict and spare a young baby who was plucked out of the Nile by the daughter of Pharaoh and raised in his very own house. You see, God had anointed this man, Moses, to rescue his people. And aged around 40 years of age, he attempts to lead a violent revolution, uh, murdering an Egyptian uh, worker. It doesn't go to plan, and he ends up fleeing for his life and finding himself in exile in Midian for 40 years. God then appears to him, sends him back to Egypt to rescue his people, delivering 10 plagues, the last being death to the firstborn of every man and animal in all of Egypt. Pharaoh then releases the people of God, but then changes his mind and pursues them, crossing the Red Sea, for the Red Sea then to fold in upon them and them to celebrate in great victory. They then make their way to Mount Sinai, where we find ourselves today. You see, they have been rescued from Egypt, and it's all of grace. God has been gracious to them. They hadn't done a single act to deserve it. God had planned it. They were drawn out of Egypt by God to be drawn into himself as his own precious possession. And God announces that he wishes to enter into this special relationship with Israel, a covenant with Israel. And Moses discusses it with all the elders of Egypt, all the elders of Israel, and all the elders together agree. So he appears to them on Mount Sinai to give them the terms of his agreement, and they are the Ten Commandments. The people of God in our passage are camped at a distance from Mount Sinai, and Moses has instructed them to cleanse and purify themselves to get ready to meet with God. And so we dive back into the story just prior to where we read this morning uh, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. It says the following. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. 
and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. You can imagine them camped at some distance from the base of Mount Sinai and you can almost see the peak stretching up hundreds of metres into the air, becoming shadowed by a thick cloud. And you can feel the breeze pick up as the clouds begin to swell and the thunder begins to rumble. And the sky darkens and lightning bolts then begin to strike the peak again and again and again. And then suddenly, the blast of a great trumpet fills the air. The passage says, an exceedingly great horn blast. And all the people begin to tremble with fear. Read on, verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Imagine the scene. The people of God are trembling with fear, but Moses stands and announces that it's not time to go away from the mountain, but to go towards it. And you can imagine they begin their nervous ascent towards the base of Mount Sinai. And we read on in verse 18. It says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went, of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. As they drew near, they discovered what they thought was clouds was in fact smoke. Like the burning bush earlier in Exodus chapter 3, Mount Sinai had descended in fire, and the smoke was pouring up from the top of the mountain like wood fire on an oven or kiln. And the whole mountain is now shaking and the sound of the horn is growing louder and louder. And you can almost feel the pure terror amongst the people as they stand there. Read on with me again. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses into the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Moses stands before the people of God and calls out to Yahweh from the foot of the mountain. Perhaps it's better written that Moses was speaking to God and God was answering him in thunder. God and Moses converse in the sight of all the people. God then answers and his voice mingles with with the thunderclaps as he replies to one man standing before a million others. God then descends in fire upon the peak and calls Moses up to the peak of the mountain. And Moses goes to join God at the peak. Imagine the smoke. Imagine the fire. Imagine the cloud and the thunder and the lightning, the deafening horn, the earth quaking, called up to the peak and off he goes. Moses then returns back down from the peak of the mountain And God speaks the Ten Commandments in the hearing of the people, thundering from the clouds. And we arrive at our passage this morning. Return with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw 
the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. You know, this verse is perhaps better translated as the people were watching the thunder, the lightning, the trumpet, the smoke, they were afraid. The picture is that as the Ten Commandments were being delivered by God, thunder and lightning and trumpet and fire and smoking and quaking were continuing. What a sight this must have been. But here's the key question I want us to examine as we look at this scene. It's this. What caused Israel to be afraid? Well, there are two sources of fear that this passage highlights for us this morning. The first of which we've already examined in some detail in my previous sermon on this passage. And that is that they were afraid because of the revelation of God's presence. You see, all cultures in all places attempt to remake God into their own image. And the West is no different. We're this hyper-individualistic culture where life is all about you and we want a God that lets us to be the center of the world. Put another way, we want the freedom to live as we please and we value as a result acceptance and tolerance and comfort and a God of wrath and judgment, we think, what gives you the right? You know, in our Aussie culture, our Aussie mateship culture, we don't like having authority over us. And so we want God to kind of be our mate, an accomplice, a life coach, a kind of a God who gives us advice, but only when we want it. You see, the God of the Bible is not bound by any culture at all. He's supreme. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. And no creature lives but by his sustaining power. And we owe everything to him. And he does not owe a single thing to any of his creatures. You see, for God to wipe us out would be no more evil than a potter choosing to rework a piece of clay. Completely reasonable. And so to come into the presence of the maker of the universe is to be faced with your own weakness. It's to be in awe. It's to realize that we are but dust, treacherous dust. So that's the first reason they were afraid. They were afraid because of the revelation of God's presence. The second reason they were afraid that I want us to examine more this morning is that they were afraid because of the revelation of God's law. You see, days earlier, Moses had explained to the people of Israel that God wished to enter into a special relationship with them. And it was wonderful grace. They had done nothing to deserve it whatsoever. They were the object of God's favor for no particular reason at all, just because of God's wonderful grace. And they had been unanimous. They had been wholehearted in their response just moments earlier. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, it says the following. All the people answered together and said, all the Lord has spoken to us, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Having perhaps naively been so quick to agree to enter into a covenant with Yahweh, he now explains to them on Mount Sinai 
the terms of the covenant in the Ten Commandments. Upon seeing with your own eyes a glimpse of the God of the universe, then hearing the conditions of the agreement that you've entered into, they respond in fear. Why? Because if we truly grasp who God is and what he requires in the law, we ought to be afraid because we've already broken it. Even a brief review of the Ten Commandments exposes us. You shall have no other gods before me. That is, do not love or treasure anything more than God. You shall not make a carved image. Don't sacrifice for or worship anything but God. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Treat his name as Do not treat his name as trivial. You shall remember the Sabbath that is constantly resting for us in Christ. You shall honor your father and mother. That's treating your parents with honor and respect at all times. You shall not commit adultery. That includes not lusting in the heart after anyone's husband or wife. You shall not steal. That includes shortchanging anyone or taking something that belongs to another. You shall not bear false witness. That includes lying, but also defending the reputation of others is what we're called to do. You shall not covet, that is, overly desire anything that belongs to someone else. In summary, as the Lord Jesus put it, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the law is not unreasonable in what it asks of us. God is not an unreasonable God. The law is a gift of grace. It highlights the gracious path of life. But the problem is that we are too broken. We are too corrupt. We are too turned in on ourselves. The law reveals our incapacity to walk with God and points to the great chasm that exists between God and us. And since God is a God of justice, it reveals that we deserve judgment. You know, Paul put it this way in Romans 2 verse 19. He says this, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law silences and condemns every single person. All have sinned, Paul says. It prevents any boasting. It has this amazing leveling effect. No one is good, not even one. The whole world is accountable to God, facing judgment. Paul says the same in the very next verse. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law exposes us. It reveals our weakness, and it reveals the folly of all human religion. That is, salvation by works. You see, every religion in its premise is basically the same. It offers salvation by human effort. Whether that be moral virtue, being a good person, whether that be knowledge, claiming or growing in, in a level of wisdom, wisdom sorry, and understanding, or discipline, like in Buddhism, revealing or, or removing all desire or longing for things. Even for the secularist, the person who's an atheist and doesn't even believe in God, it's the same. Where do you look for significance and meaning in life? You look for it in your work and what you achieve or your possessions or even in your relationships and working at your relationships. So then I'll have meaning and then my life will be worth living. Equally, salvation by works. And Mount Sinai exposes us. 
It shows us that we cannot achieve salvation by works. We can't even keep our own standards, let alone the gods of the universe. And so what is the natural response to being exposed as corrupt? What's the natural response to being exposed as a failure? Fear. What caused Israel to tremble in fear at Mount Sinai? Well, two sources. Both the revelation of the presence of God and the revelation of the law of God. Both of these revelations left God's people trembling in fear. That's point number one, two sources of fear. And now point number two, not just two sources of fear, but two types of fear. You see, our passage gives us two examples of right response to the glory of God, two different expressions of fear. And the first is improper fear, and that is seen in Israel's response. Read with me again, Exodus 20, uh, verse 18. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. The people are deeply afraid of what they've seen and heard at Mount Sinai. But rather than drawing near to the foot of the mountain, the passage says they keep their distance. In case you missed it, it it's repeated against, uh, again in verse 21. In verse 21, it says again, the people stood far off. More, they explained to Moses that they believe God is going to kill them if he continues to speak directly to them. Now, on one level, it's kind of this response, it kind of seems reasonable, right? Like, It's this hugely intense revelation of the glory of God. And yet a closer examination reveals that their response of fear is also deeply flawed. Deeply flawed for two reasons. Firstly, their demand for Moses to act as a mediator reveals their deep distrust of God. The God who had said earlier in Exodus 4.22, who said, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus is the Lord... Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God says to Pharaoh through Moses, Israel is my precious child. He goes on to say just earlier in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The God of the Bible deeply loves his people. These are his treasured possessions. This is his firstborn son. And their demand for Moses to act as a mediator reveals their deep distrust of God. 
Secondly, rather than drawing near to God as he requested them, they kept their distance from God. Verse 13 of chapter 19, God says, When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. You see, God had requested them to draw near to him at the sound of the trumpet blast, not to keep their distance away from him. Uh, Alec Motier, in his commentary, puts it this way so helpfully. He says, The people saw lightning flashes, and they should have discerned the approach of God and his grace-bearing promises. Likewise, they saw the mountain covered with smoke, But they forgot the pillar of cloud, which meant all the way from Egypt that they were the Lord's pilgrims under his care. They saw with their own eyes, but really they failed to see. In the same way, when they heard the trumpet, the sound struck fear into their hearts. It was not meant to do so, and it ought not to have done. For the trumpet was the voice of God inviting them to come to him giving them his permission to approach. Their fear was a wrong fear. And instead of responding to the invitation, they stayed at a distance. Isn't that true? They were afraid, but it was a wrong kind of fear. And they kept their distance from God. Well, here's the tough truth. Just like the people of God, we can catch a glimpse of God and his glory and respond with inappropriate fear. We can hear of the high standard of his law and just like the Israelites, respond by keeping our distance. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian despite repeated invitations because you're afraid of what it will cost you. You're keeping your distance. Maybe you attend church every week, but you never share with God or with others what's on your heart because you worry about what they will think. You're keeping your distance. Maybe you're following Jesus and you've caught a glimpse of the glory of God, but you keep significant areas of your life from his control, like your career or your money or your relationships, because you're afraid of the pain it might cause you. You're keeping your distance. This is the example of Israel, and this is improper fear of the Lord. But not just improper fear of the Lord, true fear of the Lord, we see in the passage this morning as well, and that is God's heart. See, to fear God is to rightly revere him. To see him as he truly is, the almighty, the loving, the just, the merciful creator and sustainer of the universe. In part, especially for us in the West who trivialize him, treating him without honor or respect. You know, to fear God, it also means 
listening and obeying him as well, which is his heart for his people, that they draw near to him to worship him. And, and this is what we've been saying is what the trumpet blast was all about. It was meant to be an invitation to come to him and worship. Read with me on in our passage, verse 20. It says, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Moses explains God's heart in the revelation of Mount Sinai. God has come to test you, he says. It's meant to be the university of the wilderness, continuing on. He's teaching them. He's teaching them in order that the true fear of the Lord might be before them and that they might not sin. You see, God is trying to help his people to stay on this gracious path of life. He's saying to them, here is what I'm like. I'm all powerful. I'm glorious. I'm good, but I'm dangerous as well. And I'm not to be trifled with. So pay careful attention to what I say that it might go well with you. However, what comes next in our passage at first glance seems a little bit random. Uh, Moses draws near to the thick darkness of the mountain where God was. The Lord reaffirms the Ten Commandments and gives instruction for building an altar. But it's not any old altar. Look at what God says in verse 24. He says this, An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep and your oxen. It's an altar of earth that God wants him to build. It's an altar of dirt that you shall make. Read on verse 25 and 26. He says, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you'll profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. If you make it of stone, look, don't cut and trim the rocks. Just kind of place them around, God says. Don't make it high or elaborate with steps. You might flash people accidentally. I don't want anything like that. Just a waist-high pile of dirt with or without a few rocks placed around it. That's what God says. Well, the obvious question is, what on earth is this all about? Well, here's the thing. Despite Israel's refusal to draw near to him, God continues to invite them to worship. He wants to make an easy way for his people to approach him. He's the God of the universe, so he doesn't want a, a fancy altar that people might turn into an idol. The whole world belongs to him anyway. So he invites the people to create the simplest of possible altars in order to come before him. A couple of wheelbarrows of dirt, waist high, a few rocks, if you have them, done. You don't have to be Moses or a priest to build this altar. This is an altar for anyone. And look at the promise that comes with our passage. At the end of verse 24, God says, Then I will come to you and bless you. Build the simplest of altars and make offerings to me, and I will come to you and bless you, says God. Reminds me of James 4.8, which says this. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You see, God's heart is for his people to fear him, to rightly revere him. But true fear of the Lord doesn't lead to keeping your distance from him. It leads you to humble worship. 
So, in summary, we've seen that the two sources of Israel's fear were a divine revelation of the presence of God and of the law of God. And we've also seen that our passage shows two types of fear, an improper fear that keeps its distance from God and true fear that draws near to God in worship. That's point two. But also, lastly, point three, which is, but how can we grow in the fear of the Lord? We've been learning that the key to walking on the gracious path of life is fear of the Lord. How do we grow in it? How do we kind of foster it as a community and grow in it? And this morning, I put to us that we're going to find an answer to this question really in a bit of an unlikely place. So stick with me in this, because I think it's all going to come together and make sense. But you see, in the Gospel of Luke is where I want us to turn to, uh, specifically Luke chapter 7, but don't turn there now. It's going to be up on the screen. I'm going to explain it to you. Jesus tells a story in the Gospel of Luke. Um, The story comes from Jesus being in the home of Simon the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee is a very religious man, an incredibly religious man, and he's also part of the social elite of his time. And as they're reclining over a meal, a sinful woman comes in. Meals at the time were kind of an open affair where people could come in and out. And this woman comes in and kneels at Jesus' feet. And Luke, the writer of the gospel, explains that she's weeping and she's weeping and she's crying and she's weeping so much at Jesus' feet that her tears are falling onto his feet. And she takes her hair and wipes Jesus' dirty feet with her hair to rid them of the wetness of her tears. And she then begins to kiss his feet and anoint his feet with expensive ointment. You have to understand that in the culture of this time, men and women didn't really associate. And and so this is an incredibly intimate act of devotion from this woman. And in this culture at this time, feet were considered the filthiest part of your body. And and your head was considered and is considered the, the part of your body of highest honor. And so this is an incredible Example of humility and reverence. And she takes this incredibly expensive ointment. And, and so it's a picture of this incredible cost and sacrifice. It's a picture of incredible reverence and devotion and intimacy. And this extremely religious host, Simon the Pharisee, looks on and sees a scandal. And he thinks to himself, How could this woman act this way more? How could this man allow this to happen? So turn with me as we read Jesus' response from Luke chapter 7, verse 41. Jesus says this. He answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said, you have judged rightly. Rightly. 
Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then to those who were at the table with him, began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Jesus explains that the key to this woman's amazing reverence, her amazing love, the amazing devotion of this woman is an awareness of the great debt she has been forgiven. She showed such a reverence for Jesus and in the same breath, a boldness to approach that was so great, Simon the Pharisee saw a scandal. Where did she find it? The grace of Christ towards her. You see, the difference between Jesus' parable of the moneylenders and the two people who stood before him was not that one had a greater debt. It was that only one could see their debt. See, Simon was blind to his debt and so had to come and so had not come to receive the forgiveness Christ had to offer. You see, we're not told how this sinful woman came to be so moved. Luke doesn't even give her name, but likely she had overheard the teaching of Jesus and the precious good news that he had been preaching. See, Jesus had been preaching that just as Israel had pleaded for Moses to be their mediator before God, Jesus taught that he was the God of Mount Sinai, come to act as a mediator for humanity. The Bible teaches that man has been keeping its distance from God since the Garden of Eden, and yet Jesus came and taught this in John chapter 3, verse 19. He says that, and this is judgment, the light, that's Jesus, has come into the world. And the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. You see, the response of man to the glory of God is to keep your distance. It's to run and to hide. But Jesus taught that he was God become man to humble himself and die, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law that those who sought after it could find forgiveness and reconciliation to God, the place taking death once and for all. And this woman in some way had come to realize that this is what Jesus had to offer her. And so she displays one of the greatest examples of true fear of the Lord in all of Scripture. In light of the amazing forgiveness Christ had offered her, she came to him in incredible humility and reverence without any running away, a beautiful picture of drawing near in humble worship. So how do we grow, church, in the fear of the Lord? Well, I want to put to you this morning that the primary way we grow 
is by meditating on the amazing forgiveness that you have at the foot of the cross. You see, maybe this series on the Ten Commandments, you've found yourself just overwhelmed by it all. Time and time again, a series of failures again and again and again. Idolatry tick, lying tick, you know, not coveting, tick, 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 ticking all the time. I want to encourage you, allow your failures to point you to the amazing forgiveness Christ has bought for you at the cross. Spend some time meditating on the cross. See yourself as this sinful woman and draw near to the feet of Jesus in reverent worship. Maybe this series you've been overwhelmed by the Ten Commandments, but here's what's more likely here in Warunga that throughout this series on the Ten Commandments, you haven't really engaged with them at all. So easy in our rich, well-to-do, educated neighborhood that we can allow ourselves to just keep our distance. In one way, kind of apathetic. In another way, afraid. Because you know it will cost you, if you're honest, about your failings. And in this sense, you're just like Simon the Pharisee, keeping your distance. You're just like the Israelites standing for the glory of God, keeping your distance. I encourage you, allow the Ten Commandments to break you. Be honest with yourself about your failings. And come to Jesus and enjoy his grace. Well, in closing, we've seen that the two sources of Israel's fear were a divine revelation of the presence of God and the law of God. And we've seen that our passage shows two types of fear, an improper fear that keeps its distance from God and a true fear that draws near to God in humble worship. We've also seen that the key to growing in the fear of the Lord is by following the example of this nameless, sinful woman and meditating on the deep forgiveness found at the foot of the cross. I trust we've seen that true fear of the Lord leads to humble worship. Why don't you join me in praying? Well, God, we want to thank you for your rich word. Lord, you constantly surprise us with the depth of wisdom to be found in your word. Lord, this morning for all of us, I pray that you would help us to treasure Jesus more. Lord, if we've been overwhelmed by this series and being hit time and time and time again, Lord, may we not live in condemnation, but may it point us to the fullness of the forgiveness offered at the cross. And Lord, if we've been failing in this, to really be honest with our failings and to allow the Ten Commandments to speak to us, Lord, I pray that you would humble us by your Holy Spirit, that you would speak deep into our hearts, help us to see our failings, but not that we might be condemned. Help us to see our failings, that we might run 
humble to worship. We pray in Jesus' name.